Okay, today we come to one of the more notable I am statements. They're all notable, but this one is, I'm sure, one of the ones that if you were to ask a person, can you name some of the I am statements, I'm pretty confident that they would come up with John 14, 6. I would hope that would be the case. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And keep in mind as we talk about the I am statements that this expression, I am, harkens back to Exodus 3.14, and it's the name that God himself gave himself, um, the self-existent one. And so when Jesus was using this expression, I am, he was obviously identifying himself, and the hearers understood, at least they, they heard what he was saying, and uh, it's, it's very clear that he was attesting to his own divinity. Well, John Piper, as he was reflecting on this passage, makes a a helpful uh, introductory comment, and that is that the setting of this this passage that we're looking at today is in a time when hearts were troubled. The disciples were gathered in a very important setting, which we'll unpack in a moment, but uh, they were there uh, with the Lord Jesus just literally hours before he would go to the cross on their behalf. And, uh, and, but they heard unsettling things, and their hearts were troubled. And when Jesus spoke to them, he spoke to them so that their hearts would not be troubled. And it's the same for us today. Uh, we, we, all of us have times when our hearts need to be assured, when our hearts need to be comforted, when we have restless hearts, when we have troubled hearts. And, and these words that Jesus spoke they speak to us today as well, and they, they comfort our hearts when, when we are troubled. And these are things that we need to know. These are things that we, we need to go to. John 14, 1 through 6. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. As I read those words, I, I recall very distinctly, uh, it goes back 20 years ago, actually. Uh, there was a time when uh, my father-in-law was in the hospital, and his earthly days were coming to an end, and our former pastor would sit with him, and, uh, and they, were, they were comrades in arms in a way. Each of them had struggled through very significant health issues, and, and their pastor was fighting liver cancer that would ultimately take his life. But, but our pastor, Rodney at that time, Rodney Stortz, a, a, a dear friend, he would sit and for hours with my father-in-law and he would go over these passages. He would just recite them. It was on his heart. And I, I can almost hear, even as I stand here today, the, Rodney's voice just repeating those precious words to my father-in-law. Those are words that anybody needs to hear toward the end of their life. And then there are words that we need to hear at any stage in our life. But that was a very poignant experience in, in our lives. But the setting, just to, by way of brief introduction, uh, is the uh, upper room. 
uh, in this entire section, John 13 through 17, is a unit in John's gospel that we often will refer to as the upper room discourse. And Alexander McLaren speaks of this. He says, uh, nowhere else is his speech, Jesus' speech, at once so simple and so deep. Nowhere else have we the heart of God so unveiled to us. The immortal words which Christ spoke in that upper chamber are his highest self-revelation in speech, even as the cross to which they led up to his most perfect self-revelation in act. So he was gathering at this very critical time with those who were closest to him on earth, and he was uh, beholding himself to them. He was, he was unveiling himself to them. He was revealing who he was to make sure that they knew exactly who he was and why he came. He'd, he'd spoken to them on countless times earlier, but these are, these are, there's a saying, you know, a person's last words can sometimes be the most important words that they speak. And th- these were among Jesus' last words to those whom he loved in this very intimate, very uh, private setting as he would speak to them. But it's the upper room discourse. And as we've unpacked these other I am statements, you, you know how important the setting is. The setting is, is that, that environment into which Jesus speaks. And so as we begin, he, he's revealing the fact that he's going to be leaving them and leaving them soon. In John 13, uh, which previous chapter, keep in mind that we read our English Bibles and they're all neatly divided into chapters and verses. And, and that's not the way this, this book was written. So sometimes we just need to let it flow right one chapter into the next. John 13, 1, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He knew that his hour had come. And we've, we've looked at that expression before. Uh, it's, it's actually an expression in John's gospel that, that occurs often about Jesus and his hour. In John 2, in the, in, when he was at the, um, the wedding at Cana, uh, he was talking about his hour had not yet come. John 4, when he was speaking to the Samaritan woman, his hour had not yet come. So there were certain times when he spoke about his works and his hour. But then toward the end, in John 7, 30, and John 8, 20, and John 12, uh, 23, and 27, These were times when Jesus' adversaries, those who were bent on taking his life because they were his enemies, uh, he eluded their grasp, not because he was fearful of them, but because his hour had not yet come. And he was clearly in command of his life. He, He clearly knew what he had to do and when he had to do it and how he had to do it in order to accomplish the mission for which he had been sent, commissioned by the Father to take on human flesh to live that life that no other person on history has ever lived, a perfectly righteous life, and to die the death that no one should die on their own, but that we do. But he died on our behalf so that he would bear the sins of his people. And he knew exactly what he needed to do when he needed to do it, and his hour had not yet come when they wanted to take his life. He, you remember, he, no one took his life. He laid it down on his own. And, uh, and so we have this expression, he knew that his hour had come. This is the upper room, and when he's speaking to them, literally hours before he would go to the cross. John thirteen thirty three. Little children, and well, that's a term of endearment. Um, 
It's only used once here in the Gospel of John, but John uses it seven times in his first epistle. And every time he uses it, it's a term of endearment. It's, it's ba- basically saying beloved ones, the ones that are dear to him. This, this is a term of intimate uh, friendship. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. And he really meant a little while. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, and as we've pointed out on so many occasions, when John writes of the Jews, he was not specifically talking about ethnic Israel as a whole. He was talking about the Jewish authorities in particular that were bent on taking his life. Now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And so we have this expression, and it's designed to convey uh, to them uh, how intimate they are to him, how important they are to him. He's, he's, he's going to comfort their hearts. Turn over the next page, and, and David Guzik makes a, a comment uh, that's, that's helpful. And that is that um, what he has said to them would really shake their world. They, they had been with him for three years in his public ministry, and he says he's leaving. Now, he's already told them that he had to go to Jerusalem to be betrayed, to die, but there's one thing to say that, and it's another thing to say that hour has come. And so he's telling them that he's leaving. And, and their, their best friend, the one that, upon whom they had hinged all of their earthly hopes, was leaving. And it was extremely unsettling. I think it would be unsettling to any of us if we were in their shoes as well. John 13, 36, uh, the interaction with Peter. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. And so as we turn to John 14, We need to understand the backdrop of what John 14 is all about. And so Jesus has been revealing to them that that there is one who would betray him, there is one who would deny him, that he would be leaving them. And he speaks to them to calm their hearts, to, to give them a basis for having a calm heart, to have a heart that wasn't troubled. And in John 14, verse 1, do not let your heart be troubled. Sometimes Some translations say, you believe in God, believe also in me. It's not an indicative followed by an imperative. It's an imperative followed by an imperative. He's saying, believe in God, that's a command. Believe in me, that's a command. There are two imperatives right next to each other. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. So it's a command in John 14, 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. And as I mentioned earlier, they had, they had reason to be troubled. They had reason to be unsettled. He, he had told them earlier in, in John 13 uh, that one of them would be a traitor, uh, would, would betray him, John 13, verse 21. And they didn't know who that was. And they began to look around and wonder exactly who that would be and how that would happen. And they, they revealed to them, there's a, a typo here, that all of them would deny him. And specifically, it should say that one of them would, betray, would deny him. He was speaking specifically of Peter. That's in John 13, 38. And that he would leave them that night, that his hours were numbered. His hours were very few. 
And yet, still in, in the midst of all of that news, in the midst of all of that, that, that one of them would betray him, one of them would deny him, that he would be leaving them and imminently, he tells them to settle down, that to have calm hearts. And he's going to give them a reason to have settled hearts. And so he's, he's basically saying, as Merrill Tenney says, set your heart at ease would be a good way to render this imperative. Just settle down, let your hearts be at ease. Take comfort in what I'm about to tell you. And it was a, a call to trust in Jesus. It was a call, a sacrificial call to trust in Jesus. And it was a promise as well. And, and that's so often the case that God gives us a, an imperative, a, a call, a summons, and then he gives us a promise to accompany it to fortify our hearts. And that's what he did with his disciples. He didn't simply say, settle down. He did say, let your heart not be troubled, settle down, have calm hearts. But then he gave them a very specific reason why they should have calm hearts. And it's the same reason that we should have to have calm hearts, page 3. The reasons that he gives them are in, in chapter 14, verse 2. And it deals with the future reunion with him in his father's house. Scripture says, in my father's house are many mansions. It literally means a dwelling place. It, it doesn't necessarily mean some type of a, an estate, per se, or something that you'd see in a very affluent part of St. Louis. It's, it's a dwelling place. And he's going to prepare a place for them, and he's going to take them to be with him. And, and so they'll be with him, which is the key point, that you'll be with me. And he was going to come back, and he was going to receive them. And this particular passage, as uh, Tasker makes this, uh, this observation, was a very precious promise to the early church. And that Paul may well have been echoing it when he informed the Thessalonians that Jesus will descend from heaven and gather believers to himself to be with him in 1 Thessalonians 4. So that may have been a precursor to that. But the, the key thing to keep in mind is not only was he going to prepare a place for them, but he was preparing them for that place. He was giving them a reason to look forward to being with him. And the key is that's the essence of heaven is to be with him. It's, it, it is a place. It's a place that's beyond anything that we can imagine with our earthly eyes, our earthly minds, our earthly comprehension. It is a place, and there is a place that's being prepared for his people. But the key is that we will be with our Savior, that we will be, be with Jesus forever, ever. And that those times will never stop. There will never be a time in heaven when Jesus will say, I'm leaving. He's settled. And, and then when you were with him, we are with him for all eternity. And so he transitions in verses 5 to 6 to this very key verse, which is this I am statement. And then we have this, this comment, and, and sometimes we look at Peter's response to, to Jesus, and we look at Thomas, and sometimes we shake our heads, and I'm not sure that any of us would be any better if we were in those particular circumstances. They, they were very unsettled, and, and they, they, they had been told to some degree about what was going to happen, and yet here it is, it's, it's upon them. And Thomas says, uh, we, we don't know where you're going, so where, where are we going to know the way? And, uh, and then Jesus says in verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And, and the key to here is he is saying this. There's, there's actually a, um, a comment that I came across after I put my notes together by R.C. Sproul, and, and his commentary was a sermon that he gave uh, at his, his church when he was pastoring. But I'll just simply read this to you. 
He says the structure of this statement is such that Jesus was not giving a string of descriptive terms. He was not saying, I am A, the way, B, the truth, and C, the life. He wasn't just giving them a list of the way, the truth, and the life. His statement is in what he calls an elliptical form, so that Jesus was saying, I am the way because I am the truth, and because I am the life. I am the way to the Father because I am the true manifestation or revelation of the Father. I am the way to the Father because I alone have the power of eternal life. So these are not simply a string of affirmations that he's making, but they have a very intimate relationship with each other, these, these statements that he's making about himself. And they actually have to do with the three offices of Christ, which we'll speak about in just a, a moment. But he's, he's not saying that there is a way or, or, or I, we, we live in pluralistic times, and, and I frankly decided not to belabor this point. We could easily go off on a discussion about, about how people want to have relativistic understandings. I think we understand that all too well. There's no reason to continue to, to beat that, that drum. But uh, it was unequivocal, and it's always been unequivocal in Scripture. I mean, if you read the Scripture from the beginning to end, it, it over and over and over, the Scripture talks about two ways, a way to death and a way to life. Even in Psalm 1, there is the man that, that, that has a relationship with God, and then there are the wicked. They're not so. They're like the chaff, which the wind drives away, and they will not stand in the judgment. That's just one example among countless examples. And in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, uh, you've got this, uh, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do various things? And he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you wicked. Those are horrendous words to which there is no recourse. And there is a broad way and a narrow way. And, and as, uh, countless times, Scripture talks about two ways. There's not multiple ways. There's two ways. But the, one of those two ways is a way of damnation. There's a way where, where there is no hope. And the scripture always talks about the fact that there is a way that leads to life and there is a way that leads to death. There are countless ways that lead to death. Any way that, that, that leaves aside the, the sacrifice of the, of the Messiah, the, the, the work of the Lord Jesus, is a way that leads to death. And so we, we understand that. I don't think we have to necessarily belabor that point. But he's saying, I am that way. I am exclusively that way. Joel Beakey, on, on this passage, top of page four, uh, unpacked this in a way that I thought was, was very helpful, and he, identify, he walks, walks through these, uh, these three affirmations that Christ is the only path, the only way by which sinners far from God can ever draw near to him. And by the way, as I, as I put these notes together, my hope is that you'll keep them and that maybe you can share them with someone, because if you wanted to have a clear presentation of what the gospel is all about, I can't think of a section of scripture that, that is more pointed and one that we should be really crystal clear on than this passage. So, so save the notes, maybe give them to a friend, give them to a relative, and have a discussion with them. Maybe preach it to your own heart. But this, the, the gospel is clearly, clearly embedded and articulated in, in this passage. But it's, it's the only path by which people can draw near to God and be reconciled to him. Otherwise, the wrath of God abides on them. John 10, Jesus said, I am the door. You remember that. This was in John 10. And there were two statements that he made about himself in, in very close relationship to each other. He's the door and he's the shepherd, right? And you remember the door? 
You remember what the sheepfold was all about? The sheepfold was that place of refuge. It was a sheep or, or, or defenseless animals for all intents and purposes. The only way they can elude disaster is to run. And I don't know that they're all that fast against their predators. But there, there was a safe place, and that safe place was the sheepfold. And the sheepfold was built in such a way that there would be one door, and there would be typically stone walls and there would be briars on top of the walls so the predators couldn't come in and, and, and attack the, the innocent sheep, the defenseless sheep. And there was this door. And so the, the sheepfold is a place of security. And when Jesus says, I'm the door, he's saying, I'm the only way to a place of refuge. I'm the only way that you'll ever find safety from predators. Who's, who's your predator? The enemy of your souls is the one who would delight to, to see you go to hell to be with him forever. But uh, so we, we live in a world of spiritual predators and, and there is a safe place. And that safe place is in Jesus. And he's the only door to that sheepfold. And he says, I'm the good shepherd. And, and what does the shepherd do? The shepherd is not like the hired hand who simply when he finds a threat coming his way, he runs the other way and leaves the sheep defenseless. The good shepherd literally is prepared and does often lay down his life for his sheep because he counts his life as nothing if he can't defend his sheep. That's exactly what Jesus does. And so, this, again, these, these metaphors, these descriptions that Jesus gives for himself and, and as he begins to describe why he's come and, and how he's going to accomplish his purpose, they, they build on each other. And I think, as you see, I am the way, you should be thinking about this door. You should be thinking about this safe place. You should be thinking of yourself as a sheep who's, who's surrounded by predators. And the only place you're ever going to be able to sleep and find safety is in that sheepfold. And there's only one way to get in that sheepfold, and that's through that one door. And Jesus says, I am that door, and I am the way. I am the only way that you will ever find safety for your souls. And when you're in that sheepfold, you're in a safe place. You don't have to worry about being safe. And that's the way it is today. When, when we respond to Jesus and, and, and he calls us and we, we respond to him and we embrace him as our only hope of heaven, you're in the only safe place in the universe because you're in Christ. And you, you, when you embrace Jesus as your Savior, the only hope of heaven, you have entered through that only door that can lead you to a place of refuge. And people need to understand that. That's, that's the essence of the gospel. You're telling them how to find refuge for their souls because they, they're trying to find refuge in a variety of ways. Most of them are in denial. Most of them don't even want to talk about their souls. Most of them don't want to even deal with eternity or the afterlife, whatever that may appear to them to be. But at the end of all time, they will have to face the judge of all the earth. And, and the question is, what will you say to the judge at that, on that day? Either you'll say, I did it my way, or you'll, you'll say, I succumbed to, to the lordship of, of Jesus Christ, and he was my door. And God keeps his promises. He never fails to keep his promises. The one who trusts in him, he will never turn away. You're in a safe place if you come in through the door. You're in the world's worst place if you find some other path. And that's what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the way. That's, that's exactly what he's saying. And then he goes on to the, the knowledge. I'm the truth. And he's talking about the fact that why did he come? He came to reveal the Father. It, it, John 1 uh, talks about, in the beginning was the Word, the disclosure of God, the revelation of God. 
The Word, the Lord Jesus, was with God, co-eternal with the Father, one of three persons in the Godhead, and the Word was God. In John 14, this is in the prologue of, of John's Gospel, this very precious opening chapter of John, and the Word took on flesh, became flesh, became incarnate, and dwelt or tabernacled among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. He has exegeted him. He has made clear what God is like because he is God, God in the flesh. So when we talk about the Lord Jesus being the truth in addition to being the way, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Top of page five. And he is the only way to have illumination about this truth. And, and this goes back to one of the other statements that he made about himself, uh, that, that he is the light of the world. Remember, he spoke into spiritual darkness. He, he spoke into a time of great opposition. He spoke in a time when they, they would have these candelabra in the, in the temple uh, courtyard. And, there was, and suddenly the lights went out, and he made this wonderful statement. And when he cried out so that everyone could hear him, I am the light of the world. He came to disclose the Father. He came to reveal truth. He's the only one who's ever shown us the way. There is no other one who's ever shown us the way. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I've disclosed to you who God is. I have disclosed to you how you can know him and how you can enter that sheepfold and find refuge for your souls. He's in, it's in, it's when we talk about Jesus being the truth, we, it, to know him is to have eternal life. John 17, and this is in the high priestly prayer, this is, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There's nothing more important than, you can, than the one that you can know and to know Jesus Christ and to really embrace him, to know him, because he is salvation. So he is the way to the sheepfold. He is the light the, the truth, the revelation of God, and the, the disclosure of how we can truly have eternal life. And he is the life. He is the only power by which those dead in sin can be raised to life, which takes us to the, the I am statement that we saw previously, I am the resurrection, right? But, uh, but he said in John 5, he says, just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son to have life in himself. He's where we find life. Jesus is the only place where we find life. He is life. And he gives eternal life to those who embrace him. And he, he's the only way that we will be able to live for God and with God and in the Spirit. In John 7, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. How do you, you want to be indwelt by the Spirit? Embrace the Son. Those who are in Christ will have the Holy Spirit himself indwelling them and to live now and forever. And this takes us to the I Am statement that we saw last week when Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you remember the question he asked at that point? Do you believe this? And you remember what she said? 
says, yes, you gave a confession that was every bit as robust as Peter's confession in Matthew 16. She said, yes, I have believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, and you're God himself. And so no one comes to the Father but through me. He is that door to the only place of refuge for your souls. And that refuge is the only safe place in the universe. It's the only safe place in all eternity, and it is an absolutely impregnable fortress for your soul. There is no place that you'd rather be than in that sheepfold, and he is the way to that sheepfold. And he will show you the way, and he will reveal to you what that that is like, and he will give you life forever. Well, he's the only mediator between God and man. When he talks about these exclusive truths about himself, the way, the truth, and the life, we should be thinking about 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is exactly that one, the, the one who came to bridge that gap, that, that, uh, that infinite gap between God and man, between a holy God and, and, and rebellious creatures, so that, that we could have one to stand between us, that we could have one to reconcile us, we could have one to, to take us across that gap and bring us home. Top of page six. When we look at these three affirmations about Christ, he is the way, the truth, and the life, these really correspond to what we call the offices of Christ. Uh, When we talk about the offices of Christ, we're we're talking about what he has done and who he is, his mission, and, and how he accomplished the purpose for which he came. And, and the, the, what I've re- reproduced for you are, are excerpts from two catechisms. I've reproduced for you the Christ Fellowship Catechism, and then I've also reproduced for you the Westminster Shorter Catechism. They say the same thing, but, but one simply does a little bit more, more, more elaborate explanation. But the three offices of Christ prophet, priest, and king. You already knew that, but those are the three offices of Christ, the prophet, priest, and king. It's important to know that Westminster Confession, or Shorter Catechism, points out that he is those three, prophet, priest, and king, not only in his humiliation, but also in his exaltation. He's prophet, priest, and king, not only in his earthly ministry, but in his ascended reign. And he, he continues, by the way, just to give you a little glimpse when we talk about the fact that he is our priest. He continues to intercede for us. And, and so, but we know that, but, uh, which leads us to the next thing. So when we talk about the way, we're really talking about Christ as priest. And how is Christ a priest? Because he died for our sins and he pleads with God for us. So there's an affirmation that he is our high priest, not only in his humiliation, but in his exaltation. The Westminster Shorter uh, Catechism, question 25, he does this by offering up himself once, and that's important, once. We, we, he's only did it one time, didn't need to do it more than once. A sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. That's how he is the way. That's how you get in the sheepfold. He purchased the way. He satisfied the wrath of God so that you could be admitted to the sheepfold, so that you could go and be with him. A prophet, we, we, we often think of a prophet as someone who does foretelling, F-O-R-E, telling. But equally important, the, the, the biblical description of a prophet is not only one who tells what's coming in advance, but he declares the truth, forth-telling, F-O-R-T-H, telling, 
to declare the truth, to reveal the truth. And that's the essence of what Jesus did when he said, I am the truth, the truth. What is a prophet or how is a Christ a prophet? He teaches us the will of God. And then a little bit more elaborate, he, he executes the office of prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. That's how he is the truth. So if you want to know how to find that door, you have to, to Jesus has told you how to find that door. If you, if you want to have a revelation of the truth so that you will know the way, then he is the truth that will show you the way. And that's the point that Sproul was making. These, these things are not just a list of ABCs. They're, they're, they're interactive with each other. They're very much linked with each other. He is the way because he's the only one that can show you that way. He is the truth that, that can reveal to you the exclusive path to eternal life. And so he, he reveals to us, well, he is king. And when he says, I am the life, it speaks of the office of Christ as king. And, and how is Christ a king? He rules over us and he defends us. We belong to him. When, we, when he says that he is the life, he purchases us. First Corinthians says we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Top of page 7. How does Christ execute the office of a king in subduing us to himself? You realize, of course, that no one sitting in this room that names the name of Christ did this on their own initiative. You, you realize that? You realize you weren't seeking after God. You may think you were, but that's, if, if you sense that, that's because God was drawing you. Praise God. And so if you, if you sought him from a human point of view, it's because God was drawing you. And those that God draws always come to him. He never draws anyone that does not come. And those who come, he never turns away. So he, he subdues us to himself because he, from time eternity, he, the Father has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, so that we might be his, so that we might be adopted into his family. He calls us because he has predestined us. And when he calls us, we come. And when we come, he never turns us away. And no one can snatch us out of his hand. No one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. And so he does all of those things as the way, the truth, and the life. And just to, to synthesize this, when Jesus declares he is the way, the truth, and the life, he is synthesizing, he is coalescing, he is bringing together a number of precious truths that he's already said about himself. And, and, and the reason I say that, remember the context, and that's why we spent some time on the setting. When you're sitting with those who are closest to you and you know you're going to the cross, what do you want them to understand? You want them to understand how they can be with you, and you want them to understand why their hearts should not be troubled. And the only way that their hearts will not be troubled, <clears throat> the only way that they will be with him, is if they understand that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you embrace that, you will have a reason to have a calm heart. If you don't understand that, your heart should be very troubled. But he, he brings us together, again, it, the door. This, this speaks of the way. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Enters through me, this exclusive entrance. There's only one door in the sheepfold. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. And what a blessed life that is. The, the Savior always cares for his sheep. 
And if you belong to him, if you're his sheep, he'll take you into that sheepfold and you'll be safe and he'll make sure you get fed and he'll make sure you get guarded because he loves you. He, and, and he cares for you. He laid down his life for you. He is the way. And he is the truth. He's the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Follows him. How do you, where do we go? Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Well, guess what? I'll show you the way. And he's already told them that he's the way. And, and so he's, he's going to reveal to them that, that if you want to follow me, just, just, just I will show you the way. And he's the life. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the only one that can give eternal life. And when he gives eternal life, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's a done deal. It's an uncompromised promise. There is no threat to this promise. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me, what? Will never die. Okay? There could not be anything that is more assuring than that. So that takes us back to John 14:1. Don't let your heart be troubled. And, and the question that, that Jesus asked Martha, and the question that, that I would ask each of you, the question that you, should, <clears throat> that you should ask those you love, do you believe this? If you believe this, then Jesus would say to you, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, because I am the way and the truth and the life. He's the only way to have calm hearts. And if we know him, we should have calm hearts. Because everything we need, he will provide. And he will never defect from us. He will never turn away from us. No one can snatch us out of his hand. We're inseparable from him. He's bought us, and he will keep us. And what a blessed relationship that that is. you, You can lay down your pillow at night and rest and sleep well knowing those things and embracing those things. Well, you know by now how indebted I am to J.C. Ryle, and I'm not going to, to read this for you. I, I just provided this little excerpt. But J.C. Ryle, this is a, an excerpt from his commentary on John 14:6, from his expository thoughts on the gospel, specifically the gospel of John from John 14, when he unpacks this. So I'll, I'll leave this to you just so that you can read this and, and enjoy it and, and meditate on these, these precious truths.